Well, let me have you uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation uh, chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, uh, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, and my goal today is to cover verses 1 through 7, and the title of the message this morning is God's answer to the raging of nations. God's answer to the raging of nations. It's not the entire answer of God to the raging of the nations, but we will see uh, a portion of his answer uh, in verses 1 through 7 of Revelation chapter 14. To appreciate what happens in our passage today, we do well to remember that we are right now as we're working through the book of Revelation, right around the midpoint of the coming seven-year tribulation period, seven seals have already been broken and six trumpets have sounded, resulting in an unprecedented time of suffering for the world and billions of people dying as God's judgments are falling upon the world. And yet, as awful as these judgments are, we're told at the end of Revelation chapter 9, in fact, you could turn back there if you want, in verse 20 and 21, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and idols, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. We then saw in Revelation chapter 12 how Satan is represented as a great red dragon who persecutes faithful Israel, who are driven into the wilderness by the dragon for three and a half years to be protected by God. We saw how a war breaks out in heaven in Revelation chapter 12 and how Satan is defeated by Michael and his angels and how Satan is thrown down to the earth, leaving Satan in a rage, knowing that his time is short. We saw in Revelation 13 how Satan essentially calls forth the beast or the Antichrist to dominate the world stage and lead the world at his bidding. We also saw in Revelation chapter 13 how a false prophet arises who will seduce the world into the worship of the Antichrist. This false prophet will be a smooth talker and know how to manipulate people's thinking and their emotions. He will perform signs and wonders that will make his lies all the more believable. He will cause the world to build an image to the beast And then he will give breath to this image so that it speaks and calls for the death of anyone who refuses to worship the beast. This false prophet will also cause everyone on earth to receive the mark of the beast on his forehead or on his hand so that no one on earth will be able to buy or to sell without that mark. Now, to most observers during this time, even as you read Revelation 
12 and especially 13, it will seem as if the whole world is following after the Antichrist. In fact, in Revelation 13, we're told in verse 3, at the end of the verse, that the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? As for those who choose not to worship the beast, we're told in verse 7 that it was given to the beast to make war with them, to make war with the saints, and to overcome them. Clearly, these are going to be extremely difficult days for believers in Jesus, difficult for them to resist the lies of the Antichrist and his false prophet, difficult in terms of the persecution that they will experience with so many of them being slaughtered, and difficult from the standpoint that they are all going against the grain of the world. What everyone else is doing, they're going against the grain of those who are choosing to worship the beast. Believers in Jesus have never lived through a time as dark as these days will be, as Satan's raging against God reaches fever pitch among the nations. A person simply cannot read Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 as we have done in studying through these chapters and not think of Psalm 2, where the psalmist says, let me read the first three verses of Psalm 2 to you. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what we see being fleshed out in Revelation 12 and 13. And one could only wonder what God's answer is going to be to this uproar of the nations. I am sure that many during this time period will be asking, is God on the run Is there a chance that Jehovah might actually be defeated? Will anyone who believes in Christ survive these awful days? One could also wonder what God's disposition toward the human race will be at this moment in history. Is God finished with mankind? Is his mercy now at an end? Is God... Now ready to write off all of mankind and damn them forever? If anyone might be asking these questions after reading Revelation 12 and 13, then they really need to read our passage for this morning, where John essentially makes five observations regarding God's response to the raging of the nations. Five observations we're going to see that John records regarding God's response to the raging 
of the nations. Let's just pray together and ask God to open our hearts to what he has for us today. Lord, we come to you this morning thankful for your precious word. It teaches us history. It helps us to understand the present. It helps us to understand the world in which we live. It helps us to see ourselves in the mirror and understand what is wrong with us and how what is wrong with us can be made right through Jesus. And this book also speaks to us of the future and tells us of things to come that we might be forewarned and encouraged by what is presented And I pray that we would be both convicted and encouraged as believers by what is put before us here in this passage this morning, that we might be more equipped to glorify and serve you. And for any who are here, Lord, who do not know you and have never yet put their trust in you, I pray that they would be moved to faith even this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Observation number one that John records here regarding God's response to the raging of the nations is, number one, John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion with his 144,000 followers. John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion with his 144,000 followers. Now, before I read verse 1, I should explain something about the chronology of what we're going to see. And to help you with this, uh, let me talk about The Chosen. How many of you have watched any of the episodes of The Chosen uh, over the last year? My wife and I have been watching The Chosen series on the life of Christ, um, and... Season one, as you'll recall, ended with Christ and his disciples walking toward the city of Sychar after Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, when we started watching episode one of season two, we expected it to pick up right there, but that's not what happened. Uh, Instead, episode one of season two started with a scene from years later as the disciples were all reminiscing about how they first met Jesus and with the Apostle John sitting in a house thinking through how he was going to write his gospel, the gospel of John. And after those opening scenes, we then found ourselves back in Sychar, where the storyline picked up from there. And by the end of the episode, we saw how the events in that city tied to the future moment that the episode began with. And that's sort of what God is treating the Apostle John to here in the beginning verses of Revelation 14. At the end of Revelation 13, John is right at that moment about the midpoint of the tribulation period, but the scene he witnesses At the beginning of chapter 14 is a few years into the future 
after Christ's second coming to earth at the end of the tribulation period. And this should not be weird to us at all. Evidently, God wants John to have this vision now in order to help John to keep his head screwed on straight in the face of all that he has just seen and all that he's going to see in the chapters to come. John right now needs the reminder that Christ will win in the end, and with him will be every one of his faithful ones. Now observe what John sees in verse 1. He says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Who is the Lamb? It's Jesus. And what a sight for sore eyes he must have been to John after all the ugliness of chapters 12 and 13. What is Jesus doing here in verse 1? He's standing. He's standing in victory. Where is he standing? John tells us that he is standing on Mount Zion, which lay in the northernmost part of the city of Jerusalem. Speaking about Mount Zion in Psalm 48.2, the psalmist describes it as beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. It should not surprise us at all that God would want John to see Jesus standing on Mount Zion at this point because, guys, it points us back to Psalm 2 that I was reading from a few moments ago. As I said a few moments ago, Revelation 13 tells us the story of the raging of the nations as they imagine a vain thing and try to overthrow the reign of God and his Messiah with a raging that is beautifully described in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Yet in Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, the text says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, now this is God speaking, and this is his answer to the raging of the nations. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's God's answer to the raging of the nations. And that's exactly what John witnesses here in this future scene when after the second coming of Christ, Jesus stands in victory upon Zion as God's king. This vision is God's way of telling John and us not to forget that Christ wins this thing in the end. And that nothing that Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the nations can do will ever be able to hinder his coming rule. Wonderfully, John doesn't see Jesus standing on Mount Zion alone. In verse 1, John sees the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. 
Now, we were introduced to these 144,000 back in chapter 7, and what's cool is that a few years have gone by since we were introduced to them, and we have the exact same number now. We don't see 143,999. We see 144,000, which means that through the horrors of the tribulation period, not a one of them has been lost. Not a one of them has failed to persevere in faith and be kept in faith by Jesus When we studied chapter 7, we learned that these 144,000 are Israelites, they're Jews, from all the 12 tribes of Israel. We learned that in chapter 7, verse 4, with 12,000 from each of the tribes who are described as bondservants of God, who receive the seal of God on their foreheads. At the very least, the seal that they received back in chapter 7 represents the fact that these have been marked out by God for salvation. It at least means that. The seal also means that they are protected from God's wrath being poured out upon the earth during this time period. This seal also likely means that these 144,000 will be protected from Satan's wrath guaranteeing that they will survive through the tribulation period and be able to enter into the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. And right here in this passage in Revelation 14, we see them with Jesus as he stands on Mount Zion after his second coming. It's a beautiful scene. Now, all we were told back in chapter 7 was that these 144,000 were sealed upon their foreheads. Here we learn a little more about this seal. We're told that they had his name, speaking of Jesus' name, and the name of his father on their foreheads. That's the seal. It's as if God the Father and God the Son signed their signatures on the foreheads of these 144,000 laying claim to them as their own and accepting full responsibility to care for them and to protect them from harm. As for these 144,000, they are happy to wear this seal. Let the worshipers of the beast wear the mark of the beast and the number of his name on their foreheads and on their hands. These 144,000 are happy to carry the name of the Messiah, Jesus, and God the Father on their foreheads. So John, as the chapter opens, sees these 144,000 standing with Jesus on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But what are they doing while standing there together with Jesus? This leads us to the second observation that John makes regarding God's response to the raging of the nations. Number two, John witnesses the 144,000 singing a new song that originates in heaven. John witnesses the 144,000 singing a new song that originates in heaven. John continues in verse 2 saying, 
and I heard a voice from heaven. Literally, we can translate John as saying, and I heard a voice out of heaven. In other words, this is a voice that originated in heaven and issued forth out of heaven to where it could be heard by these who were standing on Mount Zion and by John, who seems to be witnessing this scene from the vantage point of earth. This should not be strange to us. We see this exact kind of language used in the gospel accounts when a voice comes out of heaven and is heard by people on the earth. This is what is happening here in Revelation 14, 2, where we witness a most powerful moment of connection between heaven and earth. John sees Jesus on Mount Zion with his 144,000, and he hears a sound coming out of heaven that was, he says in verse 2, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder and the voice or the sound which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Notice the word like that John is using in this verse. The sound is not actual water and actual thunder. It is simply like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And John isn't even necessarily saying here that these heavenly beings are playing harps or stringed instruments, although they may be. At the very least, John is simply saying that their voices sounded like the sound that harpists make when playing their harps. And as the sound of their voice descends from heaven, this is John's experience. And he's doing his best to describe what he hears as the sound of their united voices of these heavenly singers descends from heaven to earth upon Jerusalem in this moment. John says in verse 3, and they, speaking of the heavenly voices, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So these heavenly voices are singing something like a new song before the very throne of God where the living creatures and the 24 elders are. This is a new song, John says, that they are singing, a song that has never even been sung in heaven before, a song of praise being sung in the presence of the throne of God himself. And John tells us that no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. John is hearing this song from his vantage point of earth. Those in Jerusalem can hear this song from the vantage point of Jerusalem. John could hear this song, but he doesn't tell us that he was able to learn it. Others on earth in this moment could hear the song, but they evidently could not learn it. Oddly enough, only the 144,000 are able to learn this song that emanates from the very throne room of God 
in heaven. Only they can learn the lyrics and the tune and learn how to sing these lyrics in a way that matches what they are hearing from heaven. And only they can understand the full experiential meaning of this beautiful song. What's happening here, guys, is that these 144,000 are receiving special revelation from heaven right now in this moment. They are the only ones able to receive it and to give voice to it exactly as it is being delivered to them from heaven. And this revelation from heaven is a song. We don't know the lyrics of this new song, but you can bet it is all about Jesus and about the victory of his rule over evil and about the launching of his kingdom on earth at this time that is now set to begin. You can bet this song is about God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel and about his amazing grace in saving and sealing these 144,000 souls for himself. And how encouraging it must have been to the Apostle John to hear this song being sung in this moment. He's heard so much raging and blasphemy in the previous chapter. The nations might be raging in defiance against God and his Messiah in chapters 12 and 13, The city of Jerusalem is being trampled underfoot by the nations during this time of tribulation also. But John is being reminded here in this moment that one day the tumult of the nations and the blasphemies of the Antichrist will be replaced by the sound of these 144,000 singing on Mount Zion in the presence of the Lamb. Keep in mind that these 144,000 Jews are not the only ones saved on earth at this future moment after Christ's second coming. There are other redeemed ones on the earth at this time, yet, according to this passage, only these 144,000 can learn this particular song and sing it, evidently, which leaves us wondering what's so special about this group of people that this would be the case. And this leads us to the third observation that John makes regarding God's response to the raging of the nations. Number three, John observes the faithful devotion of the 144,000 to the Lamb. John observes the faithful devotion of the 144,000 to the Lamb. Observe how John describes this special group in verse 4. He says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. We read these words, and suddenly we now discover that all of these 144,000 are men. And we know this because John describes them as not having been defiled with women. And in saying that these men have not been defiled with women, 
please understand, John is not in any way implying that women are defiling. All he's saying is that these men have not done what would be a defiling thing with a woman, and that is fornication or sex outside of marriage. John's point here in this passage is that these 144,000 men are unmarried men. And for an unmarried man to engage in sexual relations with a woman, not his wife, would be a defiling thing for that man to do. Not because there is something inherently defiling about women, but because the act of immorality is itself a defiling act for the man and the woman. We know from Scripture that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing for such sins for those who repent. But John tells us here that these 144,000 men never once engaged in immorality with a woman. Now, John flat out tells us why these men are the way they are. At the end of verse 4, he says, for they have kept themselves chaste. Literally, the Greek is, for they are virgins. These are men, evidently, who gave up the joys of marriage solely for the sake of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26, sometimes it is best for a person to remain single during times of distress so that they can be fully devoted to the Lord in service to him during that time of distress. Well, keep in mind, these 144,000 have lived through the greatest time of distress that the world has ever known. And they were wise to abstain from marriage during the tribulation period so that they could focus on serving Christ in an undistracted way. On top of that, these men giving up the blessings of marriage shows how much they are totally devoted to Jesus Christ and his service during this time in history. Describing these men, John says in verse 4, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. Back in Revelation 13, we were told that the whole world was following after the beast, but not these 144,000. They followed Christ through the days of the tribulation period. And now that Christ is on earth after his second coming, these 144,000 are following him wherever he goes. They are fanatical in their devotion to Jesus. John also tells us that these men have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And you might want to underline those words, first fruits. Christ has shed his blood at the cross in order to purchase for himself these special men. And he didn't purchase them because they were the only ones that he intended to save. John tells us that he purchased them as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In other words, these men are merely the first converts of a far greater harvest of Israelite men and women who would be saved along with many 
Gentile men and women who would be saved during the tribulation period. John continues in verse 5 and tells us that these men are also men of integrity. In verse 5, he says, And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. In Revelation 13, 14, we saw how the false prophet deceives the people of the earth with his lies, but these men are truthful men. They tell no lies. They are righteous men who speak only the truth, no matter how unpopular that truth might end up being. And John tells us that these men are blameless, which means that no one could rightly bring a charge against these men for ungodly behavior. They are truly godly men. All the descriptions that we read in these verses give every indication that these men are a massive group of super saints, the likes of which the world has never seen. And believe it or not, these saintly men will have lived through the most evil days in human history. That's astounding. Imagine the world as wicked as it will be during the tribulation period, with sexual immorality being the ruling impulse of the day, with lies being told by the Antichrist and his false prophet, signs and wonders being done by the false prophet to put an exclamation point on all of his lies, And through all of the wickedness and the evil and the falsehoods of this time period in history, these 144,000 men will remain wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus through all of that and remain pure. They will persevere in faith. And after his second coming, they will stand with him, blameless and without guile, on Mount Zion at the beginning of Christ's 1,000-year reign upon the earth. Clearly, Jesus Christ is able to inspire tremendous devotion to him in the most evil of days. And the faithfulness of these 144,000 should remind us that it's possible for us today in our present evil days to be holy and devoted to Jesus. So think about how the Apostle John would feel witnessing this scene at this point. This is a most hopeful scene that John witnesses here. But while this vision is still fresh in his mind, John is treated to another vision that seems to chronologically take him back to around the midpoint of the tribulation period, perhaps right around the time that the false prophet is demanding that everyone receive the mark of the beast. John has just described these 144,000 as first fruits unto God, implying that others will be saved during the tribulation period. Many of these souls will be led to Christ, no doubt, through the testimony and the witness of the 144,000 as they preach the gospel But there will be another event that will no doubt result in the salvation of many. And this leads us to the fourth observation 
that John makes regarding God's response to the raging of the nations. Number four, John sees a flying angel bearing the gospel message to the whole world. John sees a flying angel bearing the gospel message to the whole world. During this present age that you and I live in right now, God has so designed it that the message of the gospel gets communicated through us, right? That's what we're called to do, and Christians have been doing this for the last 2,000 years of church history. But observe what John sees happening in verses 6 and 7. He says, And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This verse strikes me as so hard to believe. Not because I have trouble believing that God could have a flying angel preaching the gospel of salvation to the whole world. My trouble is in believing that God would even want to do this at this time period in human history. But then I'm reminded that God has allowed the gospel to reach me. And suddenly this verse isn't so hard for me to believe. You'll notice in verse 6 that John describes this angel as another angel flying in midheaven. And that reminds us that John saw earlier in chapter 8 an eagle like angel flying in midheaven back in Revelation 8, verse 13, after the fourth trumpet had sounded. And if you look back at that verse in Revelation 8, 13, you'll see that that angel's message was bad news. That angel flying in midheaven was pronouncing a triple woe upon the earth because of the next three trumpets that are about to sound. Well, since then, two of those trumpets have sounded, and now the only one left is the seventh trumpet. But before this seventh trumpet sounds, this angel here in Revelation 14 is flying in the middle of the sky. And rather than pronouncing a message of woe and doom upon the earth, John says that this angel is bearing an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. This is amazing. This is a part of God's answer to the raging of the nations. He gives them the gospel. Literally, this verse tells us that this flying angel was having an eternal gospel to gospelize those who live on the earth. In other words, believe it or not, this angel has good news from God for the sinful inhabitants of the earth at this time in history. In spite of how wicked they have been, this angel has good news for them. And John calls this good news an eternal gospel. The word gospel means good news, and this is an eternal gospel good news. This gospel is eternal in the sense that it was established by God before the foundation of the world. It is eternal in the sense that it will bring eternal life, unending life to any inhabitant of the earth who believes its message. 
This is a gospel that has no expiration date for sinners who repent of their sins and believe in this gospel. And this gospel that John is talking about, that this angel is bearing, is not just evidently for the 144,000 Jewish men spoken of earlier. In verse 6, John says that this gospel is to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This gospel is for all the nations. If you are a human being who lives on the earth during this time, it will not matter what you have done or what nation or tribe you are from or what language you speak or what immoralities you have committed or what demons you have worshipped. This gospel will be for you. John does not tell us what this gospel is in this passage. He just tells us that this angel was flying in midheaven with this gospel and implied is that he was declaring it, gospelizing the world. We know from the rest of scripture what the gospel is that this angel would have been preaching. It's the message that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the message that Jesus died upon a cross in order to shed his blood so that all who believe in him will have atonement for their sins and be made right with God and have salvation for all of eternity. It's the message that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father so that Jesus, from that position at the right hand of God, might save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him. This gospel is the message that this ascended Savior is going to return to earth again and give eternal reward to those who humbled themselves before him and believed in him and found refuge in him. This is the gospel that this angel preaches to the world as he flies around the earth preaching this message from the sky. Imagine the scene. What we have in this passage is the ultimate example of open-air evangelism, right? Preach to audiences of billions of people around the world, and there will be nothing that Twitter and Facebook and Google can do to censor this angel because he won't be using their platforms anyway. Amen? But evidently, this angel doesn't just declare this gospel message and just kind of leave it to people to figure out how to respond. He tells them how they ought to respond to his gospel message. And this leads us to the final observation that John makes regarding God's response to the raging of the nations. Number five, John hears this angel call upon the world to give God the response he is due. John hears this angel call upon the world to give God the response that he is due. In verse seven, John tells us how this angel articulates his invitation John says, and he, the angel, said, 
with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Notice that this angel calls upon the inhabitants of the earth to to do three things. Number one, to fear God. During a time when everyone is fearing the Antichrist, and they're asking, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? No one dares go against him. That's what everyone's thinking, but this angel is calling upon the world to turn away from the Antichrist and to fear God. To fear God means to recognize that there is more to fear from God than from any man. It means that one should not fear those who only have power to kill or destroy the body, but to fear the one who has the power to cast both soul and body into hell. To fear God means to recognize his power and authority to judge a person righteously to hell. It means to recognize that you are a sinner who can righteously be judged by God to hell. This angel also calls upon mankind not only to fear God, but look at verse 7, also to give him glory. The Antichrist right now is wanting the world to give all the glory to himself. But here, this angel is calling upon the inhabitants of the earth to turn away from the Antichrist and to give God the glory that he is due. To recognize that God is the Almighty, not the Antichrist. To recognize that God is the one who sits on the throne of the universe, not the Antichrist. To recognize that God is the source of their life and breath, not the Antichrist. And to recognize that God is the one who can save forever, not the Antichrist. We should probably remember that this call to give God glory embodies confessing our lack of glory, confessing our sins. In fact, write down this reference, Joshua 17.9. Joshua speaks to Achan, who had committed a terrible sin. And in Joshua 17.9, he says to Achan, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. According to Joshua's wording, In that passage, when we confess our sins, we are glorifying God by acknowledging that he is righteous and we are not. He is the true one and we are the liars and that he is righteous in his pronouncement of us as sinners. We read in the Bible where God tells us that we are all sinners. Most people A lot of people don't like that. They get offended at that. And I've talked with people and evangelized people who refuse to acknowledge that they are sinners in the sense that the Bible depicts it. They disagree with God. But when someone says God is right, 
when he tells me that I am a sinner and let God be true and me be the liar. I'm agreeing with God and I'm confessing that I am a sinner. That glorifies God. According to verse 7, this angel calls upon the people to fear God and to give him glory. Look what he says, because the hour of his judgment has come. At this point, the world is but a few short years away from the second coming of Christ. The end is so near that it can be spoken of by this angel as having already come. In fact, when this angel is declaring this gospel invitation, the world will in this moment be on the verge of the seventh trumpet that will unleash the most awful judgments that the world has ever seen, culminating in the second coming of Christ. And God in his mercy is giving mankind this final opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel and to repent and give God the glory. The final call in this angel's invitation in verse 7 is worship him. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and the springs of waters. God is the creator of all that is and we should worship him as the creator of all that is. The Antichrist and his false prophet did not make the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. God did that. And he should be worshiped for the creator that he is. To worship God means to cease worshiping anything else and ultimately to cease worshiping yourself. It means to stop insisting that God and everyone else orbit around you. It means to yield the center to God and to recognize that he is God and you are not. And then to bow before him and live your life orbiting around him. It's when we are orbiting around God, when we yield the center and orbit around God, that we discover the truest and the freest version of ourselves. It is orbiting around God that we discover ourselves as we were truly created to be. And this is the invitation that this angel delivers to the human race in the second half of the tribulation period before the seventh trumpet blows, gospelizing them on commission from God with the gospel and then calling upon them to respond by fearing God, giving him glory, and worshiping him. The beauty of what we see here in these verses is the mercy of God all the way to the very end of human history when the world is at its worst. The world at this point is about to fall off a cliff of God's judgment and God is standing on the edge of that cliff as it were, calling upon all men everywhere to believe in his eternal gospel and be saved. This is incredible mercy. And anyone at this time in human history who insists on plunging off of that cliff into eternal hell 
will have to do so with the sound of this angel's voice ringing in their ears. So this is God's answer to the raging of the nations during this future time that is still yet to come. He establishes his Messiah on Mount Zion, surrounded by 144,000 faithful ones who are singing his praises, and he gives the world the good news of the gospel and calls upon people the world over to believe in his son and be saved while there is still yet time. This is God's answer to the raging of nations even today, I hope you know. He holds forth to this day his Messiah, Jesus, as king, surrounded by Christians around the globe today who love Jesus and who sing his praises. And through us, he gives the gospel to all the world, calling upon all people everywhere to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. So what will it be for you this morning? Will you believe in the eternal gospel that this flying angel is preaching? Will you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Will you give heed to this angel's invitation to fear God and to give him glory and to worship him with the worship that he is due? If you do give heed to this angel's invitation this morning, then when you share your testimony from now on, you can say that you were led to Christ by a flying angel in mid-heaven. More importantly, you can have your sins forgiven and be made right with God for time and for eternity. For us as Christians, I, I think we have a little something to learn from this evangelizing angel. Right now, Christ has given us the commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But are we doing that? Are you doing that? Imagine what we must look like to the angels of God who behold the face of God and who so long for the gospel to be made known. Imagine how hard it is for these angels to remain silent and stay on the sidelines when they see us remaining silent and not sharing Christ with others. As the commentator John Phillips says, and I quote, the angels have looked on in amazement at Christians wasting priceless opportunities for telling others the good news, hiding their light under a bushel, investing in the tinsel trappings of earth, time, talent, and money that might have been invested in preaching the gospel to every creature under heaven. But now, here in Revelation 14, an angel is given a chance to tell out the good news, and he flies to his task. What a rebuke to our tardy, dawdling way of doing the king's business. On another front, I've, I've been unusually blessed as I've studied these 144,000 Jewish followers of Jesus in this passage. You have to know, I started working on this passage 
thinking I was going to preach all of chapter 14, so verses 1 through 20. Uh, but I've been quite taken with these initial verses in this chapter and by the beauty of these 144,000. You and I are not the 144,000, but we can be inspired by their devotion to Christ. These men were happily willing to give up the joys and the blessings of something as beautiful as marriage for Jesus, and they followed him with utmost integrity during the dark days of the tribulation period. What are we willing to give up for Jesus to serve him during these days in which we live? Christ, in all likelihood, wants many of you to get married and to raise children to know and love and serve him. But Christ's will for some of you may be to remain single so that you can serve him in important ways. Either way, whether you are married or single, the example of these 144,000 teaches us that we ought to be willing to give up anything for Jesus, even if it's a good thing. These men were also men of integrity, leaving us to ask ourselves, how much do we value personal integrity and truth? Are we blameless and truthful in all of our ways? Do we speak truth, especially the truth of Christ, even when we may know that it will cost us? Are we blameless and truthful in all of our ways? And do we repent whenever we fall short and fail in that? Does blamelessness and integrity matter to God? Well, God takes the time to tell us that these men were blameless men of truth, showing us how important these qualities are to Jesus Christ and to his Father. Also, these men are singing men, singing men who are interested in learning a heavenly song and then singing in a way that harmonizes with heaven. Their example reminds us, as Daniel Aiken says, that Christianity has always been a singing faith and it will remain so for all of eternity. And when we sing today, we're just simply rehearsing for eternity. There's a lot about these 144,000 to love and to emulate, but I don't want to point you to their example and say, be like them. I'd rather point you to the one that they adored and say, be infatuated with him just like they were. I'd rather you and I take a closer look at Jesus and ask, what is it about Jesus that these 144,000 see in him that maybe I don't see? What is it about Jesus that would inspire such deep devotion from them? What is it about Jesus that they see that would inspire them to stand so bravely against the world and come through the darkest, most evil days in human history with their integrity 
intact. Maybe what they saw in Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who gave up his life on a cross to take away their sin, and they know that they've been forgiven much, and so they love him much. Maybe they saw in Jesus a person who himself was blameless in every way and in whose mouth was no deceit ever. Maybe they saw him as the one who himself followed the voice of his father wherever it led him, even when it led him to give up his life on a cross. Maybe these 144,000 saw Jesus for the absolutely glorious person that he is, full of grace and truth and goodness and mercy and power to save. And their desire was to just simply do anything they could to please him. The primary prayer that I am praying after studying through this passage this week is, Lord Jesus, open my eyes that I might see you as these 144,000 see you. And I believe that if we all pray that prayer and if God were to answer that prayer, then all of us together can serve as at least a portion of God's powerful answer to the raging of nations today. So let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord God, you are good to give us this passage. You are good to give us these brothers that we can behold in this passage and take inspiration from them. If you only could answer one prayer from my heart, Lord, it would just be, give me the eyes that these men had that I might see you as they see you. To see your worth, to see your beauty, to see your goodness. We are so easily, Lord, seduced away by things that are so worthless and that do not satisfy when we have the opportunity to take in the breathtaking vision of you and to enjoy relationship with you, that if we could but know you as these men did and see you as these men saw you, we would do anything for you. And when we failed, we would swiftly repent and bring pleasure to your heart through our repentance. The nations rage today. We're not waiting for some future day for the nations to rage. They rage today. And it is sad to witness so much that is going on around us on the global stage throughout our country and in our culture today. You're going to win this thing in the end, and we know this to be true. 
we know that you will answer thoroughly and decisively in this future day that we have been studying. But may, Lord, your answer to the raging of nations be evident even today through us. As we sing of you, as we love you, Lord Jesus, as we walk in integrity as the people of God, willing to sacrifice anything that we might be wholly devoted to the service of you. And may many be drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus through the witness of the brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone and through other biblical local churches throughout this city and throughout the world. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,